Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. It's been a manic week, no fewer than 86 results in this week's magazine. How have you uh, felt coping with that for the first time, Companies Editor Ian Smith? I've been relishing it, John. Relishing, relishing it. <laughs> it's uh, a learning it, experience. It's it's pretty hectic, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's it pretty, pretty hectic. hectic. But uh, we got it done. We got it done. And uh, Bradley, it's not been a quiet week on the news front either. No, it's not. And also, obviously, chipping in with results. So yeah, I've got my fair share in the back of the towards the back of the mag. So yeah, it's been a good one. Yeah, it has indeed. It has indeed. It felt like a week that was never going to end because. As it happened this week was also our uh, ISA special that we produce once a year where we put together basically 50 ideas for anyone looking to, to make the most of their ISA allowance for the year. So that's gone in the, the magazine as a special supplement. Uh, so all in all, we, we must be top of 100 pages this week in the magazine. Great looking cover as well. Yeah, it's nice, isn't Very it? It's absolutely yeah, lovely. Uh, not bad for £4.70 though. Not bad for £4.70. Okay, today I think we're going to stick with results and news. Feature-wise, we've got John Barron in the magazine, uh, the latest investment trust portfolio update. I've got a great sector focus on the challenger banks, um, which Emma Emma Powell has produced. She's uh, she's taken to that sector like a duck to water. She really has, yeah. And the challenger banks is just an interesting ongoing theme for that sector. Indeed, know. and we've it's got a good s- set of results from Virgin Money. Yeah, um, yeah, and we've got some results from the the, the the old boys of the sector as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. RBS and Lloyd's and uh, pretty contrasting results uh, as well. Yeah, a lot to say on the recovery stories there. Okay, but let's start with news, Bradley, because I think I think the big news this week. I mean, it's really this this Morrison's Amazon deal. It was extraordinary stuff. Morrison's, you know, we, we use the words kind of stricken here. Maybe that's a little bit harsh, but they had they had a good Christmas recently. Things do have seemed to be going Morrison's way a little more than you know, they were previously. And Since it got a new chief exec. Well, yes, that there is a correlation. Um, <laughs> being diplomatic there. <laughs> But yeah, this this tie-up with Amazon, I mean, the headline, I suppose, is this must be good for Morrison's because Amazon obviously is such a huge presence, you know, in all of our lives. Uh, m- many people, well, I think you probably struggle to find many people who haven't used Amazon at some point. So it's it's one of those companies, you know, I know what it does. I know, you know, it's kind of ruinous for so many of the, the kind of establishment players in so many sectors. I think, oh, I'm going to shop with someone else. And I never do. Exactly. It's just, it's a very clever business. And so Morrison's will have the ability to sell some of its goods via the Amazon pantry service, which is Amazon's kind of foray into the sort of food delivery market. So they're not calling that that in the UK, are they? I think they are, yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But basically, obviously there is, you know... Amazon's a, a big beast. It's strong. So, I mean, the financials, which we're not we're not sure about yet, we're not quite sure how this deal works. We, we may never well be, I suppose, because of confidentiality mm. agreements. But um, some of the people that we've spoken to for our news piece do sort of raise that issue that, yes, this is wonderful in terms of a volume perspective, but it will be interesting to see how much Morrison's actually makes via selling its goods on Amazon and you know, how much will Amazon take. So we're kind of yet to know that, but on a headline basis, the deal I would say is going to be good for Morrison's if, if nothing else from a volume perspective. Um, Morrison's own website prior to this has been doing a bit better so that's obviously the strategy they're really gunning for especially as they close down a lot of their M convenience stores in the southeast and uh, London. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there was a bit of uh, sort of joined up thinking here you know let's close some stores let's make the website a bit better oh and now we've got this deal with Amazon. You know things could start to start going a bit better for Morrison's and maybe it'll be interesting in a year's time to see how it stacks up in the pecking order against its peers. Another interesting aspect of this deal is that they already had an online distribution deal with Ocado. Yes. And by all accounts, the terms of that deal 
were not exactly in Morrison's favour. No, I think that's uh, true to say. And um, I think that Ocado has most definitely suffered as a result of this. Well, the shares took a beating. When the shares came out. did not um, react very well to this news, no. And Morrison's has renegotiated the deal with Ocado, but the um, the particulars of it don't sort of don't really go in Ocado's favour now, I don't think I'd say, because obviously Morrison's is going to probably be focusing um, on its new deal with Amazon. So Yeah, yeah, pressure pressure on Ocado here. Yeah. And there's worries, I guess, that we also talk about in this week's magazine, that yeah, what it's done with Morrison's but has potentially damaged its its long-standing relationship with Waitrose as well. So not, not looking good necessarily for Ocado here. No, and this is the thing. I mean, it's obviously... Um, as you say, it's it, it's long said, Ocado, I think, in, in results, write-ups. From just, I've got this through os- osmosis from Harriet, who covers the sector, but it seems they've always been sort of pledging another contract, another contract around the corner. Maybe they have been in discussions and things just haven't quite worked out, but this other contract hasn't actually really ever transpired, and I think that's quite an issue. I mean, I used to cover Ocado, and I, cu- I covered Ocado when it floated, and I was always very suspicious. and uh, I was quite bearish on it at the beginning, along with a, cu- a number of analysts in the sector. And, you know, it kind of, it worked out, that bearishness, for a while. And then, of course, the Morrison deal kind of changed everything. I mean, that really was the game changer for them. And it made their numbers look a lot better than yeah. the actual underlying grocery trading was. I think this deal also is interesting in terms of the relationship with that and the Sainsbury's bid for home retail group. Um, that mm. kind of idea of a big grocer trying to get a bigger d- distribution network. I think at the time people said that uh, perhaps Sainsbury's were mindful of the challenge from Amazon that was already doing fresh food delivery in the States and was trialling it in the UK. So you can see a lot of defensive moves from the bigger grocers that are looking to try and understand how the kind of consumption of goods is changing and what kind of structures they might need to have in place to, to meet that. Well, there's an interesting piece in the FT this week about the changing nature of supermarkets, their relationship with online players, in light of this Amazon-Morrison tie-up. And, you know, what you've got to think, well, you know... There was a lot of question marks when Sainsbury's talked about its interest in home retail. You, you, I mean, it's a small industry. It's a big industry, but it's a small industry. There's not that many players. Perhaps they knew that there was something afoot between one of their big rivals and and one of their big rivals in the in the non-food space as well. I think it's that's very likely. Abs- absolutely. I mean, it's fa- absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah, um, I think it's the start of a well, not the start of the sort of um, the continuation of a you know a, a trend. And as I say, in a year's time, it would be very interesting to see how this has worked out for Morrison's. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult enough industry as it is. You know, food retail in terms of kind of the low margin nature of that business. And well, you yeah, know, Amazon, you know, for, for all of its might, it doesn't make a lot of money, and it and it doesn't make a lot of money because it's basically buying huge market positions. Maybe it's an area where, because they still have much larger market shares than the discounters, where they feel that they can make some kind of inroads and they are safer from competition in the online space. Maybe they aren't quite as worried. If they can do a big tie-up with Amazon Morrison's, they could create a big kind of online food distribution network that the likes of Lidl and Aldi will find it difficult to to compete with, albeit mm. they're obviously looking at different audiences. Yeah, I mean, to me it does suggest though, that Sainsbury's actually probably does need to do a deal like the home retail deal, actually, to, to really stay relevant in not just non-food but grocery as well I mean it's 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 changing exactly right we've got an industry moving moving under our feet here and uh, And for investors and I suppose another implication of that is if people get more comfortable with having fresh food delivered by Amazon which for a lot of people will probably be a bit of a step you know they don't mind buying an old DVD do they want kind of fresh food delivered if people start to make that shift and we've seen the kind of increase in delivery of freshly cooked foods, you know, and takeaways and how that's powered on. If that moves across the kind of fresh food ingredient space, 
then these guys need to kind of uh, catch up with that. This is an interesting observation about the nature of what people buy online when it comes to grocery anyway. I mean, you know, most of what we get delivered via Sainsbury's online grocery is it's the non-perishable stuff. You know, mm. it's, uh, you know, big, big item boxes of cereal. You know, this isn't what I would call fresh food. You know, we still buy a lot of fresh food on the hop throughout the week. So, I mean, you know, the nature of the, the business is changing. The nature, mm. nature of the game is changing. And I think Amazon's entry marked a, a, another turning point in, in, in that industry's uh, development. Exciting for us to cover, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wish I was, wish I was doing it still. <laughs> wish I was doing it. I mean, talking to discounters, um, you got a little bit of news there from Poundland. Um, I mean, yeah. they've been having a torrid time lately. Yeah, I mean, basically, the, the news of the Poundland is that their, their chief executive's um, stepping down. And you might think, well, I think he's reached the uh, age of about 60 now. I think he is. he's been there about a decade, so it makes sense. But um, I don't know, uh, we've kind of posited that maybe he might have wished he had kind of handed in his notice a little sooner. Because ever since the um, announcement that they were going to buy their rival 99p stores, the shares um, at the time of writing our piece had fallen about 37%. So... The reason they've fallen is because the costs of that acquisition have been going up a bit. The store estate needs a bit of work, maybe a bit more than they originally thought. Which which I still find baffling because all they would have had to do was walk into one shop. They are, they are not. Well, yeah, we, we, I mean, we've had this conversation in the past. And you said you've been in one. And you, oh, just, you, you couldn't don't get it. Couldn't fathom it. Couldn't understand the business. And yeah, I mean, so basically, a, a new chap is going to come in. Uh, Kevin O'Byrne, um, who's the former chief executive of B and Q, he joins in April. So arguably, he's got a fairly um, tough task ahead of him. You, you might think, oh, great, the business I'm joining has just bought another one, very similar business model. I'm sure, it's all fine. But yeah, th- there has been a bit of a hiccup in the acquisition of 99p stores and obviously mr burn is gonna um have to roll his sleeves up straight away mm, we've got that on a cell still haven't we i believe that's I correct we yes have. we do yeah we do okay. we, rem- we remain sellers i was just did morrison to a hold because we were pretty negative on that one and actually morrison looks like it's about to get promoted to the fifty one hundred. There's a little mention of the reshuffle here in uh, seven days. Yes, um, the reshuffle. I mean, the most notable examples, I suppose, of the reshuffle are um, Aberdeen Asset Management, um, which is going to be knocked out of the FTSE 100, and also, uh, I think, Sports Direct as well. Yeah, yeah. Which has had... um, Yeah, Sports Direct always has a bit of a tough time on the PR front. Um, You know, Mark Ashley is a, a guy people obviously love to hate, I mentioned that in my column this week, actually. I was, well, was going to say. It's, yeah, uh, I was looking at companies that had a lot of bad headlines and whether that's just the right time. Could could it be a contrarian buy indicator? But one argument against that, which I didn't cover in my column, which is that if something like, say, this happens and it falls out of the FTSE 100, then it falls out of the passive funds yeah. and then it has a knock-on. So you can, can have that momentum effect. Yeah. Um, but you can look at other examples like Plus 500 last year when it um, had to suspend some of its customer accounts. I think we might have discussed it last week on the podcast. We did. Yeah, and then... At the time, uh, I have to admit, I was kind of very bearish on it. You know, a lack of trust in a financial services company is a big problem. But if you had invested in it after they had the big share price drop at that point, you'd be doing very well now because the business has come back quite strongly, despite the aborted bid from uh, Playtech. So you, you mentioned Tesco as well. If you look at Tesco, if you had invested in that back in September 2014, just after it had this shock where it said that it had uh, misstated some of the uh, revenue assumptions and that, that it was profit uh, f- uh, guidance would actually be off by, I think it was £250 m- million. Pounds. It was a lot yeah. of money. 
a lot of money and obviously that had a big reputational knock for the company but if you had invested in them on that bad news and then after the Christmas trading the Christmas that year the Christmas trading was good so when that was announced at the beginning of 2015 you'd actually sold you would have done very well so if you had employed that much known maxim of buying on bad news and, and selling on good news uh, you would have done quite well so this is something I looked at obviously this is all with the benefit of hindsight it's very easy to say look at the trough and look at the peak and that's this, all we've got Ian it is all, all we've, we've got, got. <laughs> Is all we've got. But, you know, perhaps Sports Direct ones at the, is one at the moment where because of the governance and because of the Mr. Ashley factor, uh, he's being overly hit by the market. You could say oh, another one that I looked at a little bit more closely was G4S which has had a number of very bad headlines, especially recently. Um, and it's knocked the kind of shares, kind of price to earnings ratio to historical, what is kind of historically quite cheap over the past three years. So perhaps you can look at these kind of companies and say, can we get beyond the headlines how, you know, just how bad is this actually for the company on a longer view? I think there is always the old argument that you shouldn't try and catch a falling knife. That's the other side of it, yeah. But that, I guess, is just buying on the basis that share prices have fallen and won't fall any further without doing any further analysis. And what we're talking about here is actually looking into the business and, and actually trying to understand the, the, where these problems Oh, how how deep seated they actually are, yeah. and it basically you, uh, yeah, that's what it comes down to. You have to take a view about how bad the problem is, and if you think that the market has overestimated how bad the problem is, which was the case in Plus Five Hundred, arguably, and there were brokers at the time that were saying, okay, we'll look at some areas of the customers that haven't been affected. If you can actually make that call based on the evidence, you, there are there is some benefit to be made, but it's obviously a very tough one. Mm. So and like Sports Direct, I mean, you know, people are always going to be gunning for Mike Ashley, but of course they are. Um, so you, on on your thesis. And you could say, well, you know, the shares have had a real drubbing and may, now could be a time to sort of take advantage of that. But I guess, uh, again, to go back to you, Ian, is that you have to kind of look at the underlying business as well as the bad PR. And I think with where Sports Direct's concerned, you know, it's not looking that good. The growth is not great. Whereas with your example of Tesco, a, a slight miscounting error, if you're being sort of kind to it's them. It's been very generous. <laughs> then, you know, but I mean, in the, in the, in the context of the size of Tesco, then... Maybe the shares, well, clearly the shares did kind of overreact. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the case of both Tesco and Morrison's, you know, you've got new management coming in, which uh, mm. which is potentially good, essentially troubleshooting type management is what is yeah. what you want, and you know, you've got new guys coming in who really are there to shake the business up and, and, and sort out these problems, and and they seem to be doing that. So, uh, yeah, Sports Direct, my kids won't go in there anymore. They've reached that point where uh, Sports Direct trainers are not good enough. Wow. JD Sports all the way. Is that like a, a, a pivotal moment in growing up now? It was a pivotal moment in growing up, yeah, and it's a pivotal moment for our bank accounts. Because, <laughs> uh, you can get trainers a lot more cheaply in Sports Direct than you can so in JD Sports. You're trying to encourage them to stay, I suppose. No, it's, 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 it's a fashion thing and there's nothing I can do about it. JD Sports, I mean, look at that company. Does well come rain or shine. Mm. Uh, we've had that on a buy since, you know, the year dots, yeah. uh, with a few, you know, pauses along the way. But uh, if, if there isn't, uh, that's a classic kiss of death, if ever I've heard one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it wouldn't be the first time. Other news, we've got Petro Celtic, which is uh, the subject of a, a very lowball bid here. Yeah, it's um, under a bit of pressure. Um, it seems like every day they're kind of. Um, trying to make a, a statement and trying to sort of reassure people. I think actually um, Alex Newman, who's the reporter who wrote the story, um, said today um, Petra Celtic has released another statement effectively saying it doesn't know what it's going to do. I mean, that, that's boiling the message down to its That's what bones. you want for management? Yeah, uh, they're, they're kind of on the one hand saying, oh, this this sort of like 3P a share offer is very low, but then saying, yeah, we, we almost... We don't, we don't, but we almost maybe perhaps agree with the fact that the equity in our company is not worth... 
very much at all. Yeah. So yeah. they're working out what to do. I mean, an activist investor you would have to say is um, you know obviously a hard negotiator. So you might say that they're obviously going to try and get a price that is very very good, and therefore they might be met with management a bit sort of beyond that. But yeah, yeah. Um, I've it's going to be a very interesting story. It's, it's quite a small stock, but um, we just kind of thought the it was. Um, worth our readers attention there, there, there will be some readers no doubt who are invested in it and it's also tied up to the larger kind of oil story going on at the moment so that, that's a kind of a, a wait and see one if, if you're in there well, if it, you're looks, in it looks like a, it looks like a classic bottom of the cycle bid yeah i and mean it does and if this oil company has some assets that have oil underneath them then yes you're right and the oil price over the last week or so has started to stage a little bit of a recovery you've got saudi and russia apparently having kind of some form of conversation at least which i don't think was even happening before so there are maybe rumblings in the market and also um in seven days as well we kind of note that the um amount of uh, net long positions that um, hedge funds have um, has actually hit 320,289 and you're thinking well what does that mean it's the highest exactly what I was thinking it's the highest number since records began in 2011 so okay not the largest data set but nonetheless it shows perhaps uh, or gives credence perhaps to what you've just said there Um, maybe we're nearing the bottom of this cycle in oil yeah which would be good news for some of the engineers we've covered in the results reporting this week i mean the oil prices really hit some of them for six a lot of them obviously provide equipment to the oil and gas exploration industries and yeah it's obviously been a, a, a torrid time for them yeah and just uh, all of them just talking about how much costs they can cut to try and you know stay above water so to speak okay yeah absolutely big results this week for the banks Yep, more big results for the banks this week, uh, RBS and Barclays. Um, and Lloyd sneaks into this edition. I know we talked about it in last week's podcast. But, you know, a real mixed bag when it comes to the recovery stories the major, major banks in the UK. Uh, we talked about Lloyd's last week, so maybe that, we'll ignore that for now. But uh, just in short, the, uh, the dividend's coming back, which is good, um, and it really rallied the share price. Quite the opposite for RBS. Uh, story going on there where it's pushed back its dividend it now doesn't expect to pay a dividend until after uh, q1 2017 um, and this is uh, one of the reasons this is so disappointing for people uh, such as the ic is called kind of a recovery story a while ago on rbs was that the hope was that with the uh, recovering tier one capital ratio that's of tier one capital's risk-weighted assets with the bank becoming stronger again in line with regulatory requirements, that they would then be able to pay uh, a dividend out of that um, enlarged equity or, you know, return some capital to shareholders. Um, and it looks like there are further problems that are kind of pushing that back. So they talk about the drawn-out litigation in the in the US over Forex trading, uh, but they also talk about challenges regarding the spin-out of their challenger bank, Williams & Glynn, mm-hmm. which they were compelled to... That's kind of where uh, it all began, Williams & Glynn. These were kind of a couple of core, well, especially the Williams and Glynn was a core part of our original uh, buy tip, which yeah. precedes me. But well, because Lloyd, Lloyd's managed to get rid of its smaller retail arm TSB. Yeah, I mean, Lloyd's managed to do a lot of things that RBS has struggled to do. And, you know, RBS probably had bigger problems, but all the same ones. You know, Lloyd's managed to reduce the government's stake, which is good, managed to free itself as an independent entity. It managed to spin out successfully TSB, which was then picked up by Banco de Sabadell. It's managed to kind of improve its underlying profitability, even though it has been absolutely weighed down by this kind of PPI charges. 
But RBS, they're struggling to spin out Williams and Glynn. They have more of these kind of uh, more of these litigation costs that they're having to take larger um, provisions against, um, and, and and they have trouble on the kind of the income side. You know, it's really still a very difficult picture. So we've we've lost the faith for RBS. Well, I say we, um, our uh, banking correspondent Emma Powell. I'm not has surprised. kind of given up a bit on that recovery story. Yeah, I'm not it, surprised. And, just... and not to mention the fact that the government, with the taxpayer, we still own 80% of that bank. Yeah. You know, and you've got the question of how is that going to be unwound? And the government has tried to kickstart that process. They hope that starting to talk about it would start to push the share price up because then um, the analysts at Rothschild had kind of told them, you know, that might be the case. Well, you know, because of all the problems we've talked about in this podcast facing the banking sector, there are just many issues keeping RBS's share price down. So that's going to be a long, drawn-out story. Yeah, Barclays also had a pretty shocking week. Barclays was had a sh- shocking week, and but that's a bank that Emma is kind of keeping the faith on in terms of recovery story. They had to halve their dividend for I think 2016, 2017, if I'm not incorrect. So they were kind of halving it in advance. But on the plus side, the kind of underlying profitability was uh, was stronger. They're doing a good job of reducing those risk-weighted assets, so they're kind of selling out of their uh, African business. And although they've had kind of PPI provisions as well and kind of litigation, US litigation provisions as well, uh, they have managed to improve the kind of capital base there and the underlying trading does seem to be strong and they're making progress on the kind of ring-fencing of the UK, Barclays UK retail bit from the Barclays corporate and international bit. So we think that we're still kind of keeping the faith with Barclays, as I say, that the new man, uh, Jess Daly, is turning that bank around. Okay, he's not been there long, so give him a a chance. Exactly right. I mean, I know it's an interesting story in the FT this week again, that in fact the consumer uh, sectors of the FTSE 100 had now uh, outgrown the financial sector. They have, yeah. Outgrown or... Not shrunk quite as quickly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, that's your sector, Bradley. What, anything interesting this week from uh, from the consumer goods giants? Um, yeah, John, I suppose uh, BAT kind of falls into that category, uh, British American tobacco. Cigarette stocks are very much known for their dividend prowess. I mean, I think the yield on the bats now is about 3.9%. So um, a little bit above the market, I would say the market's probably around 3.4, 3.5 at the moment. It's kind of much of the same, really. Um, they sort of... You know, sales were um, slightly down. Um, it's tobacco. Yeah, I mean... It's the way it goes. It is the way it goes. And, and also, they are putting a lot of um, emphasis quite high up now in their results on the um, efforts they're making in alternative types of smoking, so e-cigarettes and that sort of stuff. And they actually launched um, a new type of... Sort of, it's like tobacco heating products into Romania, I think, was the first market they've gone for. And I guess they'll roll that out into other geographies if it's successful so yeah it's an interesting story i mean i guess um from the consumer angle i mean i guess bass is kind of making sure that um it stays relevant to customers and people who want to give up cigarettes may still be using it so that that's going to be the key and maybe that's why some consumer stocks and the consumer sector as a whole has become bigger or maybe as you say not shrunk as much as other sectors because um there are things going on in in retail to kind of make sure that companies stay relevant mm, well i guess i mean there's there's defensive argument as well when you know uncertainty increase the attraction of companies like bat where you yeah. know people aren't you know people are giving up smoking but but a lot of people are still smoking oh yeah so I mean, there's a guarantee of cash flows in the years ahead it's a global company and obviously as you say if, if there's a bit of fear in the market it wouldn't be surprising if people maybe sold some of what they considered their more sort of dicey holdings and put a bit more into something like bat um 
I mean, the, the dividend's risen for the seventeenth consecutive year. So, you know, the it is it is generating cash. You know, it is um, it has been around for a long time, and the chances are we will still be for a very long time too. Absolutely. Um, let's go down the scale a bit. A good week this week, Greg's. Greg's. Yeah. They are Greg's? well. Greg's was an interesting one because they have. Um, they're shutting three of their bakeries, and that might sound not like very much, but actually when we say bakeries in this context, what we're actually talking about is the central bakeries at which they bake all their goods, which are then distributed to their shops. So they're closing three of those to kind of, um, I guess, you know, they're going to cost a bit. And Well, they're replacing them with these things that have been called, brilliantly euphemistically, manufacturing centres of excellence. So it's the idea that they're going to have these higher tech, bigger distribution centres that are more future-proofed um, and getting rid of the older bakeries. I'm not sure. I'm not exactly clear of the differences between the two, but it's all part of their kind of inf- uh, £100 million investment programme that they're putting in place. And it seems to have been quite well received by investors. The shares were up 16% on the day of yeah, the results. But that was also because they were uh, their figures were ahead of expectations so i think they've been doing quite well on kind of healthy option and breakfast we've seen you know you've seen that in a lot of kind of fast food if it's fair to call greg's fast food uh people going down the breakfast route haven't we with to quite a lot of joy um so yeah looking at emphasizing healthy food emphasizing breakfast options seems to be doing quite well for them too so yeah well, I, quite I, guess, a big riser. I guess the point there is that they're making sure that they're keeping up with the consumer trends that, exactly uh, right. uh, you know adjusting the business, realigning the business to, to, to do that. Actually, on the same page, you've got one of my old favourites, Nichols. Hey, Nichols, oh, yeah. Oh, I love this company. Yep. I shouldn't love companies. Never <laughs> fall in love with companies. Um, but Nichols is just, a, I've always liked this company. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, it, it had a really kind of steep share price fall at the start of the year, but it has started to kind of claw that back a bit. Um I in, loved it. I just love this whole story. Yeah, interesting. It's, I, really, it's, I enjoyed reading this. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's mine, so I'll, I'll take pleasure in that. Um, they basically um, were obviously sort of in some sort of sponsorship deal with this um, festival in the Midlands, and obviously being a, a you know, pretty sensible company, they obviously marketed heavily in the area where the festival was taking place before it actually happened and during, and obviously a bit afterwards. And actually, what it's what it's led to is it's a slightly curious um, figure, I suppose, but it's kind of basically led to a strong desire subsequent to this festival for Vimto in Birmingham, and they've noticed a I think it was like a nine percent rise subsequent you know demand for Vimto in the Midlands area. I can't um, believe that statistic: one in four households are now drinking Vimto in the yeah. Midlands. It was a rem- it was obviously a remarkable marketing effort. Um, led by Ed Sheeran. It, led by Ed Sheeran, who was well, he was he was at the festival. I don't think he was necessarily endorsing Vimto. I'm, I'm sure he loves it though. Um, he, he is now, according to your article, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tried to sort of not, not associate them too closely, but <laughs> didn't do very well there. But no, yeah, Ed Sheeran was at this festival, and um, which obviously helped the amount of attendees, I suspect. And Nichols was well placed to advertise his drink. And um, yeah, as I said, it's, it's the taste, um, the habit for Vimto has stuck. The slight downside with Nichols, I suppose, is that. Um, uh, one of its key markets is the Middle East, and um, you know there there are conflicts in the Middle East, obviously, notably Yemen, which is where it ships a lot of its goods into. Um, but I think the trend in the UK is is strong. And obviously, the UK is a much greater portion of its um, earnings than overseas is. Yeah. Well, just one. Uh, just Bradley was sticking with your results, but um, just wanted to flag Merlin Entertainments. So that's mm. quite a good example of a company that's had some quite bad headlines. Um, now, how how is that uh, recovering from the crash at Alton Towers? Yeah, I mean, it's starting to. I mean, it had a bit of. Um, 
obviously when the, when the accident happened on the smaller roller coaster, the shares fell an awful lot. It's kind of recovered. The share price has recovered a bit since then. Um, but obviously, you know, the the accident did leave two people needing leg amputations. It left three others seriously injured as well. So the the legacy of this accident is going to be around for a long time. And actually, the health and safety executive is now moving to prosecute um, the UK subsidiary of Alton, of of Merlin, which is effectively sort of part of Alton Towers. Um, so that kind of is is a reputational issue. Um, uh, being a bit crass, I suppose, in terms of the financial side of it. I mean, you know, Alton Towers was definitely hit shortly after the accident. Um, visitor numbers visibly reduced. And um, I don't think they're as strong now as they were. But um, the likelihood is they'll come back a bit. But Merlin is, again, a global company. Um, it's expanding Things like as Lego parks, um, they have they're building more hotels on those parks, so people are going to stay longer, spend more money with them. Um, the midway attractions, a lot of those are in the US, they're sort of opening more there, and um, yeah, so it's, it's a global story, obviously. But for us, obviously, the, you know, the how it performs in the UK is important, is a big part of its uh, business. And another thing they did was tie up with, um, I think, it's Big Bus Tours. Um, so they've got a joint venture going with those guys now, and Big Bus Tours is again a global company, so. Um, Merlin's hoping that while people are on bus tours of uh, the world's greatest cities, they can flog them a few uh, tickets for a Merlin attraction. Yeah, absolutely. Bouncing back from bad news, share prices um, has recovered uh, quite sharply mm. in the last few weeks. Yeah, it, it has. And um, yeah, as I said, you know, the, the reputational thing of the the smaller roller coaster accident is probably never going to sort of fade. Um, but from a business perspective, Alton Towers, I suppose, is you know one park out of. Um, dozens that Merlin owns so. yeah yeah absolutely so many results in this week's magazine I don't know where to turn next I mean <laughs> Glencore. Ian, was it Glencore I mean let's let's one more Glencore one Go more on. yeah I mean I think it's just one that our readers will be uh, very much looking out for it's a continuation of the same story it was just interesting you talk about hitting the bottom in terms of the oil price and when it uh, comes to the mining commodities uh, the Ivan Glasenberg who's the head of Glencore said you know he thinks that they've bottomed in terms of the impact. Obviously, they've lost the dividend for 2015. They're cutting their capital expenditure hard. Yeah, it, the miners now kind of a third discount to its net assets. Um, but, you know, the credit uh, rating agencies are looking hard at these companies. So it's it's a really interesting one in terms of where do you call that bottom? Anyone that called the bottom, um, you know, at the end of last year will have been hurt. Mm. Uh, by this, so we've we've never tricky. been we've never been big fans of Glencore. Partly because we felt that uh, the trading operation was was quite opaque. We didn't really understand it was a bit of a black box. And in fact, that trading operation was supposed to protect it from from exactly the kind of commodity market weakness that we're seeing at the moment. It doesn't seem to have done that job, <clears throat> which is interesting. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing it has done is managed to reduce its debt burden a bit. So that's you know, in terms of a big problem overhanging it, it has been reduced a bit. But yeah, plenty of challenges, as you say. Yeah, and we're actually on the same page. We talked about gold miners last week. We've got a silver miner here for Znillo, and uh, that's a healthy looking share price over the last few weeks. Yeah, it's done well. You know, as the, as the rise in price of gold and, and silver, as you say, uh, has increased, they've done quite well. I mean, we, there, there are still um, some kind of challenges facing them, um, but they've managed to increase their production. The, but 2016, probably the inc- production won't increase quite as fast yeah, as it did in 2015. We've we've um, we've bailed on this one because we this is actually a mining tip we've made money on in the last two years, which is a good one. Um, but we've we've said take take your profits here, sell just just take them. <laughs> it's, yeah, I think it's just on a sector valuation. Yeah. It's just too expensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, loads more results in the magazine. We've got some house builders um, looking as strong as ever, even if the share prices have, have kind of uh, 
started to flatline a little bit. Lots of the uh, real estate sector more generally. Funny things going on there, particularly those that are exposed to London are looking yeah. really um, quite dicey at the moment. And there's Prime couple, London especially. Prime London. With the changes to stamp duty. Absolutely. And we've, we've got a whole rush to sell houses, at the, sorry, buy houses at the moment uh, at other levels of the market ahead of the buy-to-let changes, uh, tax changes coming in April. Uh, so I think some data came out today saying that house prices have gone up and that was one of the factors that people think there. So, you know, we could just have one of those bit of a heat in the house market as people rush to um, transact then mm. let's see what happens after April you know yeah I was, I was intrigued at Jonas's piece on Capital and Counties and uh, obviously it's selling off the flats that are being built where the old Ells Court Exhibition Centre used to be it's been having a bit of a nightmare there uh, in the last six months yes, so indeed. yeah it's really got to tread carefully where, where real estate is concerned at the moment especially in light of potential Brexit which you covered as well this week Bradley I did interestingly we, we had a little chat in the office about Ocado uh, and what it, what it actually is you know is it a technology business like it claims to be is it a logistics business which it certainly doesn't want to be given it's that's a much more lowly rated type of activity is it a grocer and yeah we, we were having this debate and there's a couple of uh, companies in here who are genuine technology businesses just eat and right move and they're a good example of, of what a tech enabler really is they're not shifting product they're not you know, delivering takeaways they're not selling houses they're literally an enabler yeah that's have, a proper tech business you look at right move it has a platform with a, with a huge market share that seems to be growing it's really the go-to um they have a huge stranglehold on the market by and they provide very much a kind of a tech platform for people you know we all know what right move does right? yeah you're sort of kind of a tech company almost like your company you can kind of understand just by the name of it because you have some familiarity with it. Right? Well, I think Just Eat is the same. Yeah, and Just um, Eat has also done very well. I mean, the share, the, price, their adverts. the share price has come off a bit in the last few weeks, but I, I would imagine that's more... Uh, <laughs> very good. Uh, a valuation thing um, in light of the recent market wobbles. But in terms of what it does, solid as a rock. Exactly right. Okay. Well, that's great. Let's stop there. Otherwise, we'll be, we could be here for the next 24 hours discussing results of this week's magazine. There's plenty more next week. Oh, please don't say that. Another Toby Hand Potty, 31 pages this week, yes. 25 next week. Yeah, so not quite as busy, but still pretty busy. Hopefully calm down at some point. Okay. So thank you, Bradley, and thank you, Ian. Um, as I said, lots more in the magazine. We've got this supplement on the ISA uh, special, which the person finance team will no doubt be talking about on their podcast. We've got the usual uh, comment from Chris Dillo and Bearble and The Trader and Simon Thompson. John Barron, as I mentioned. Uh, we have a nice sector focus, as I mentioned, on the Challenger Banks. We had some great results from Virgin Money this week. That's a sector that is definitely worth keeping an eye on. Algae back with a value growth and momentum stock screen. Who says you can't have it all? Um, <laughs> Clearly not algae. Not algae, <laughs> You can have it all with Algie Hall. Oh, I like that. <laughs> anyway, enough of the puns. Thank you very much. Magazine will be available from Friday morning. All good news agents and supermarkets, £4.70. And uh, we'll be back again next week. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>